Hello, everybody out there in podcast listener land. This is CJ back with another episode of Dangerous History. And at this point, I am done with summer school. Knock on wood, perhaps forever. And I am back from this past weekend going to the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest in Delton, Michigan. And what a great time that was. Really enjoyed myself. Last time I went was 2016, and I enjoyed that very much. And if anything, I enjoyed this one even more. It was great to reconnect in person with folks I knew from before and to meet new folks in person for the first time as well. Very cool stuff. Anybody listening that I hung out with over the course of that weekend, I enjoyed being there with you. And I'm glad I got to go. Huge thanks to Joe Motard for helping to get me there. Quite literally could not have done it without you, Joe. And big thanks to everybody else involved in organizing the event and making it happen. This episode is going to be the audio of my presentation at the event, which I delivered on Sunday of the event at 1 p.m. on the topic of avoiding intellectual inbreeding. But before I get to that, I have a few important announcements. And don't skip over this yet, because... It's not just my new Patreon signups, there's something else first, which is I've started putting together a bibliography page full of Amazon affiliate links. Remember, if you use any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon shopping, I get a little percentage commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. And as a way to hopefully help stimulate more of that sort of activity, I'm putting together a bibliography page. It's already begun, and it's a work in progress. It'll probably be perpetually a work in progress as I keep adding to it. But if you go to profcj.org Amazon, you'll see it. It's called CJ's Dangerous Amazon Bibliography, and I'm breaking it down by sort of topic areas. So I've got things like American Revolution, Civil War, Gilded Age and Progressive Era, the World Wars, Clandestine Operations, Power Elites in Theory and Practice, Anarchism in Theory and Practice, The Rise of the State, some fiction books. These are novels that tie into the sorts of themes I cover, and at least so far are mostly ones that I've mentioned or even reviewed on the show. Then I also have some films as well. I have some feature films as well as documentary films. So a whole page that I'm working on, go check it out. And remember to check back regularly, because like I said, I'm going to be adding to it pretty much continuously as time goes on. And as always, if you do any of your Amazon shopping through any of those links, I get a little commission and it costs you nothing. And it doesn't just have to be the things that are explicitly listed on those links. Basically, you can go through my link for the book Albion Seed, and then not buy Albion Seed, and instead buy a new K-Cup coffee maker, and regardless... You got to Amazon through one of my links. I get a few nickels. It's a win-win. Okay, now, before we get to the talk, I do have awesome individuals to thank for signing up recently via Patreon over at patreon.com slash profcj. So, giant thank yous go out to James, Ethan, Kirk, David, Greg, Juan, and Brittany. Thank you all very, very much, sincerely from me, for signing up to support the Dangerous History Podcast directly via Patreon. 
And just as a reminder and encouragement to all of you out there who are not yet supporters of the show, who've thought about becoming one for five bucks per month, I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I make. You'll also get access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available in Patreon and nowhere else. And you will get access to the so-called vintage DHP episodes which are the first 52 episodes of the show, no longer publicly available. And you will get early access a day or two early to regular DHP episodes. And you will get those ad free and Patreon thank yous free. And of course, you'll also be eligible to join the private Facebook group, DHP Scholar Warriors. So I hope you'll consider signing up to support the show that way. Just a few of the bonus episode topics that are there waiting for you for just $5 a month or more are things like Samurai and Ninjas, Operation Northwoods, The Haitian Revolution, Part 3 of my 21 Key Concepts and Theories, the last 7 of 21 there, two bonus episodes on the naval aspects of the not-so-civil war, several film reviews that are available nowhere else including a solo review by me of the made-for-TV movie from the 1990s, The Hunley, on the first Confederate submarine, as well as a joint review between myself and Joshua of the Dusty Den on the film Demolition Man from the 1990s. Also, several original sci-fi stories written by me and read by me, as well as the most recent, as of this recording, bonus episode, Corporate Abe, The Other Side of the Lincoln Administration, which deals with all of the corporate welfare aspects of the Lincoln Administration, all of the non-directly war-related elements of his presidency that hardly anyone ever talks about. So I really hope you'll consider supporting the DHP via Patreon, and that's just some of the really cool stuff that you'll get if you do so. All right, now on to my presentation from the 2018 Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest, Avoiding Intellectual Inbreeding. Time has come for um, another one of our our most honored guests. Uh, actually, one of our uh, I believe one of our first major speakers to serve two non-consecutive terms. Um, CJ, <laughs> our next speaker was here in 2016 for the first time. Um, he did miss last year, but he's back with us now again, and we're really glad to have him. Uh, a lot of you may have uh, heard him on his podcast, the Dangerous History Podcast. Um, and thankfully he's done with school now, so he can be here with us to, to relax a bit. And, um, I want to welcome to the stage, Mr. C.J. Kilmer. Yeah, been a long weekend, but I'm happy to be here. And I'm not sure how to, how to feel about things going on. Kind of towards the end of things like this, I'm not sure, after all the speakers we've had already, do I see myself as batting cleanup, or do I see myself as the fourth stringer who comes on when the game is already long since decided, and they're like, let that poor SOB get off the bench for a minute, get a little bit of playing time. So 
I guess it's in the eye of the beholder, and we'll see how things go. But um, before I get into the to the meat of my subject, I'm going to be talking about. I just want to share some very hard won historical lessons. Don't tug on Superman's cape. Don't spit into the wind. Don't pull the mask off that old Lone Ranger. Don't get involved in a land war in Asia. And don't stay up drinking with Lou till 4 a.m. If you've got something to do the next day, don't do that. So, yeah, if I'm less than 100%, that's, that's what I'll blame it on. So the purpose of my talk is to... Let me free this up. The purpose of my talk is to basically just try to encourage everybody uh, to be as omnivorous and eclectic as possible within reason when it comes to the intellectual content that you consume, you know, whether it's reading, listening, or, I don't know, watching documentary films or whatever, but to always stay, always stay diverse, always stay omnivorous, and to, to avoid getting locked into uh, any sort of echo chamber, even one that you basically agree with. So I'm doing this because, like probably most of the people here, I'm not a big believer in top-down solutions to complicated social and political and economic problems. I'm a believer in bottom-up, bottom-up in the sense of the whole one improved unit model of, of fixing people one at a time, especially myself. And part of this, I think, is to be as, as widely knowledgeable as your time and inclinations can allow you to be. So for sure, um, two previous speakers of this weekend, Scott Horton and Brett Vinat, they're, they're good exemplars of kind of what I'm going to talk about a little bit here in that both of them on, on their shows regularly have guests on with whom they do not agree 100% on everything. And yet, they're still able to have thoughtful, productive conversations, even with those people who don't you know, share all of their exact ideologies across the board. So those are, those are you know, examples of exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about here. And for my part, I'm very proud that while I'm sure a lot, you know, most of my listeners probably agree with me on a lot of things, I do know for a fact that I've got a fair number of listeners, regular listeners to my show, who actually don't share my worldview 100%. You know, they are not Lysander Spoonerian individualist anarchists, at least not yet. But, and, and I don't care if they all ever, if, if some of them never quite make it that far, because to me, um, you know, the important part is that they're getting value out of what I do and they're appreciating it. And at the end of the day, I don't, I don't really care if everybody uh, agrees with me or not, but hopefully everybody who listens to my show gets value out of it. And I know I've got a fair number of listeners who fall into, into that category, who are big fans of my work and actually are not, not on the same page as me ideologically across the board. And I even know for a fact that I have a decent number of even financial supporters of my show who actually don't share my ideology but they still find enough value in what I do 
that they enjoy it and want to support it. And, you know, I kind of take it as a mutual compliment to me that my, they still find value in my work despite not agreeing with it, and to them that they're open-minded enough that they can appreciate content that doesn't just reinforce everything that they already think, that challenges them a little bit. So, um, as some of you guys I know are in, in my private Facebook group for uh, Patreon supporters of the show, so you know that I love, a good, I love a good quote. One of the things I do in there almost every day when I'm not like here, you know, off the grid, is I'll post a quote of the day and I, and I try to make it very, you know, diverse, not always points of view I agree with, um, diverse in terms of topics and subjects. It's not, you know, only just historical or only just political. It's all kinds of stuff. So I'm going to run through a few quotes just to kind of get us thinking about the sort of stuff I'm going to be talking about in the rest of this presentation. Um, a few interesting quotes that get us working in the direction of where I'm going to go. So first one, it is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. Do any of you know who coined that one? Aristotle. Aristotle. Doubt is the beginning, not the end, of wisdom. A little bit more obscure than Aristotle. George Iles. To have doubted one's own first principles is the mark of a civilized man. Oliver Wendell Holmes, of all people. Good for him. Stop clock is right a few times a day. When some particular faith or ideology which you have held for years is shaken or torn away from you by logic or life, aren't you afraid of standing alone? That belief has for years given you satisfaction and pleasure, and when it is taken away, you are left stranded, empty, and the fear remains until you find another form of pleasure, another belief. Krishnamurti. And one more, I know of no country in which there is so little independence of mind and real freedom of discussion as in America. And that's, of course, Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America. Now, obviously, he knew very well that this country, you know, doesn't actually have very much, back then or now, of formal top-down censorship, at least, other than in, in time of major wars. But he understood that there's this social tendency in this country of people to kind of go into their tribe and all kind of just say the same stuff as each other, um, just based on social pressure, you know, not, not, not based on any kind of fear that the state's going to come throw you in a cage for believing the wrong things. So I hope that all those quotes kind of get you thinking um, and, and maybe thinking about how in the hell do those things interrelate together. And, and with this idea I'm talking about of intellectual inbreeding and hopefully trying to minimize it um, in, your own, in your own learning. So I want to take a brief personal diversion and mention a few things of, of why I tend to be more wary of this than, than a lot of people by, by personality and background. I tend to be more wary of getting into like groupthink echo chambers of any sort. And part of it is, is personality, you know, wherever, wherever that comes from. Um, some of you may have heard of the big five personality traits. It's, it's getting a little bit 
better known among the general public because Jordan Peterson, who's you know super popular, has has mentioned it a lot. And it's um, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. And if you're high in those things, you're high in those things. And if you're low in those things, you're high in the opposite of those things, right? So I went online after, after hearing this mentioned various places, and supposedly it's like a very, you know, pretty well, like, scientifically backed up, like, valid way to kind of evaluate personalities. And I went and I took one of these online quizzes that tries to, like, you know, plot you on graphs on those things and whatever. And for what it's worth, I mean, I, I, I know it's just a little online quiz and there's limitations to that, but it had a crap ton of questions. And I really did try to put effort into being thoughtful in how I answered them and re really trying to be honest. And the results were very interesting. The results were very interesting. Almost off the chart in openness. I was almost off the chart in openness. I was like at the very top of openness. Now in, in this uh, scheme, what openness means is not like openness in terms of outgoingness. That's actually you know, covered by, by extroversion, which I'm fairly low in. But openness means openness to new ideas, new information, new experiences, that sort of thing, right? So I was very high on that, low on almost everything else except kind of high in neuroticism. That wasn't good. That wasn't good. And when I read that, it actually made me more neurotic. I was like, shit, now I'm, now I'm high strung because I'm high strung. It didn't help. But... I'm very, very high on openness, so it's kind of interesting to see that reflected in like a semi-official test sort of a thing, like, oh, that's why I'm kind of weird in terms of like, I'm just curious about everything, right? And, you know, probably at an at a, at a event like this, there's more people who are high in openness by far than amongst the general population, I would imagine. But, you know, out there when I'm, when I'm amongst gen pop, uh, certainly, and, and I'm sure many of you have had this experience, people are just not curious about things. They're just not at all. You know, they, they just want to uh, reiterate whatever their favorite TV channel tells them or you know, just retweet the same stuff on, on, on uh, social media and what have you. So I've got that as a personality trait. And then in terms of my background, I'm actually one of these people that did okay uh, through the education system. You know, which obviously is not, is not a, a, a proof that it, it works, right? I mean, you know, a faulty system can, can do the right thing occasionally, right? Sort of like the stop clock being right a couple times a day sort of thing. But when I went to college in particular, I, I had a mostly pretty positive experience. I went to an old school, small liberal arts college and got my, my uh, bachelor's degree in, in history uh, with, a, with a minor in political science. And because it was kind of a, a classic old school liberal arts sort of a college, you were encouraged and even on some level required to take classes in many, many different subject areas besides just your major and your minor and all that sort of thing. So, you know, obviously I took mostly history and political science classes, but I actually took a huge amount of other stuff too on the sides there. Um, everything from, from psychology to statistics, which was one of my few C's in college, to theology, to some pre-law classes, and also a fair amount of creative writing classes as well. And I enjoyed having that, that experience, having, you know, oh, I got my history class in the morning, and then right after that I'm going to, to creative writing class in the afternoon. And this is one of those colleges where like most of your classes are 15 students, 
and, and the, the professors are all, you know, geared towards teaching more so than towards, you know, just publishing stuff, and there's, there's no, like, TAs and whatever, so you're actually, um, you know, really interacting in, in that sort of a relationship with, with the professors. And so as a result, I got, and I was already a guy who, like, read very widely on a lot of things, but I did benefit from having the structure of, of kind of like a curricula in the sense of I ended up reading stuff I would have never thought to read. And I ended up benefiting from a lot of it. So just a short list, I mean, I, for, for example, I encountered a lot of the, the kind of like classic books of, of philosophy and history um, and these sorts of things that I might not have ever encountered if I was just on my own, you know, wandering through the library. And so, you know, I read and discussed in my undergraduate years Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, Hobbes, Locke, Machiavelli, Aquinas, Marx, Milton, all sorts of these characters, right? And it was primarily a Western-leaning curriculum, but I, I did even so get exposed to enough Eastern thought and philosophy that I was able to at least kind of know what I was interested there and then go on my own time and, and you know, learn more about Taoism uh, and Zen Buddhism and these sorts of concepts. So this was omnivorous and eclectic learning, and I think I benefited from all of it, including all the stuff that I read that I, di that I disagreed with. But I still think that I benefited from seriously engaging those things, you know, from actually sitting down and reading all this stuff, uh, Marx and whatever, that obviously I, I don't agree with very much of, but to read it and to read it seriously, not, not to read it like from the perspective of you're internally strawmanning it from page one, right? But to sort of go in with, with kind of an open mind, a blank slate of, all right, let's see what's really here. And I'm going to figure out for myself what I really think of this, what I really think are the strengths and weaknesses going on here, what I think are, you know, if, if I do decide I, I think most of this is wrong, I'll at least know why. I won't just be going, oh, this is a name that's on a list of people my tribe says I'm supposed to hate them and their ideas. It's like, well, I might end up hating them and their ideas, but I'm, I'm going to do it for myself. I'm going to come to that conclusion for myself rather than just through the shortcut of, of tribal identity, okay? So this, uh, by the way, this education that I had, it sounds like something from a forgotten era. Um, this was, we're talking 15 years ago. So, and I would imagine that there still are probably at these smaller, you know, non-crazy colleges, there probably are still programs like this out there where it's something kind of more what you think of the ideal of a liberal arts college education. You know, I had the sorts of professors who actually welcomed critical thought and disagreement, both with the material we were covering and with the professors themselves. They actually appreciated it and encouraged it, you know, as long as you were, as you were civil and intelligent and not just, you know, being a dick or whatever. So looking back on all this, I think that the openness of my personality kind of steered me towards a liberal arts education when I did go to college, and then it caused me to like really get a lot out of that sort of an education and, and to really flourish there and, and to appreciate being exposed to all different sorts of information and points of view and materials that I never uh, would have probably come across just kind of on my own without any sort of guidance out there. So then in graduate school, of course, for history where I got my MA degree, things got way, way more ultra-specialized. 
And so I, I didn't quite enjoy that as much. But even so, I still, I still benefited from being, being exposed to ideas, um, including many of which I ultimately came to reject, um, but from seriously engaging with them, okay? And I still made the most of it that I could in, in graduate school. I still tried to be as kind of, you know, well-rounded in my approach as I could within the context of the program. And there were, where I went to uh, graduate schools, more of a typical university, there were some dogmatic nut jobs amongst the, the professors there, but I was able to kind of suss out who they were and just not take their classes and, you know, steer myself towards the professors who were, you know, again, very encouraging of, of independent critical thought and, and even of disagreeing with them. So all that said, then I, I got my, my uh, master's degree, and since 2006, I've been teaching college history. So overall, you put it all together, I've been in higher education, you know, regular academia um, for, I guess, 18 years at this point. First six, six years as a student, and then 12 years as a teacher. Right? So I've spent a lot of time inside the machine. I know all the good and all the bad that's there. And all this despite the fact that by personality and ideology, I do not fit into academia, as, as you could probably guess if you've listened to many of my podcasts. Um, I, I do not fit into conventional academia very well, but I've been in it a long time. Now, the vast majority of people in conventional academia I find mostly to be extremely boring. And it has less to do with the fact that they mostly believe different things from what I believe, and really it has to do with the fact that they mostly believe the same stuff as each other. So it would be one thing if, yeah, most of them were people I disagreed with, but there was like a wide variety of flavors of, of people I disagree with to kind of stimulate my mind. But when it's, you know, you've got the, the spectrum running from sort of like a social democrat to a hardcore unrepentant Maoist. That's, you know, that's not a, it's not a great segment of, of the spectrum. So my argument here is going to be that if you only ever read, listen to, talk, and interact with people who agree with you on like 95 to 100% of everything, then in a way, you're just like academia. You're just like those academics. Okay, because you're becoming intellectually inbred. And I don't think you want to become what probably most of you dislike as I do, right? Um, you know, you have to be careful when you battle with monsters that you don't become one. There's another bonus quote for you. Be careful when you battle with monsters that you don't become one. There's always the danger that, that you become the very thing that, that you're criticizing. You know, you're your own version of it, sure. I mean, the, the details of the content may be different, but you'll, you may develop that same intellectually inbred way of thinking uh, and that, that kind of intellectual laziness and shortcuttingness where you're just, what's true? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to basically do argument from authority. I'm going to say, what does this one guy that I've liked about things in the past say? Oh, what he says about this issue that I have questions about, it must be the truth. That's a very tempting shortcut. We're all prone to it. We all do it. I'm guilty of it too. But the point here is to be, what I'm, what I'm trying to hopefully kind of just encourage you to think about is, is to be more conscious, uh, conscious and cognizant of sort of, 
you know, doing some metacognition in your own thinking, diagnosing when you're starting to do that and go, oh, I see what I'm doing there. I don't want to be the kind of libertarian version of academia. I don't, I don't want to be that uh, dogmatic in how I think. There's a difference between the conclusions you come to and how you come to them. And the second thing I think is more important, okay? If I ask, if, if I ask you what's two plus two and you don't already have that memorized and you hold up two fingers and two fingers and then count it up and go, oh, it's four, right? You got the right answer and you also used a valid, repeatable, reliable method to get to it, right? If I ask you what's two plus two and you grab a pigeon and you slice it open and spatter its entrails on a table in front of you and then based on that, you kind of read the, the tea leaves in its guts and you say, well, two plus two is four according to the entrails. You got the right answer, but I'm assuming it's just through luck. And I'll actually have more respect for the guy who does it on his fingers and makes a mistake and says it's three because he forgot to you know, put one more. Have more respect for him because he at least was closer to using a valid method to answer the question than, than the guy who got four by looking at entrails from a pigeon. Okay, so in a way it's sort of like the intellectual equivalent of show your work. Now, even if your ideology is different from the ideology of the academic establishment, you're kind of becoming like them if you only ever just interact with people who reinforce what you already believe. And when you're in an isolated, insular, intellectually inbred kind of ideological tribe that's very rigid and dogmatic and all that, you'll have a tendency, we all have this tendency, even people like me with you know, high openness, we have this tendency to start to see ideas that contradict whatever you hold at the moment. Not to be things to be confronted calmly uh, with an open mind and engaged with, with reason and intellectual argument, but if you're becoming intellectually inbred, you're more likely to quickly go to the stage of shouting, ostracism, blacklisting, accusing people of being heretics, those sorts of things, right? The very things that, you know, probably a lot of us dislike about the kind of SJW types, right? Where it's immediate, you, you jump over the argument, you don't engage the argument, and you're immediately at the level of, you are a bad person for raising an idea. So I don't want to be that, that type of person. And, and I'm assuming probably most of you really don't want to either. Another problem uh, is of becoming intellectually inbred is you're, you're still not fully mentally liberating yourself if you leave one kind of prepackaged, insulated thought pattern and simply leave it and replace it with a new one. Even if the new one is maybe marginally better on like certain specific ideas and certain specific points, you're still not not fully mentally liberating yourself if you simply slough off one prepackaged deal of ideology and replace it with another one that's also a prepackaged sort of a thing. Another problem of being intellectually inbred, and this is rife in academia, as probably a lot of you know, is that you start to get totally lost in your own jargon. You get lost in like your clique's little you know, special words and things, 
And don't get me wrong, any, any field or discipline is going to have some degree of that. It's inevitable. But the more uh, intellectually inbred that, that a, a group gets, the more its jargon just kind of takes over in a, in a self-perpetuating uh, uh, increase to the point where very quickly you can hardly have a conversation with an intelligent, educated, just general public person in any way that they'll understand. Even if you're talking about something that you theoretically are an expert in, because really, you're not an expert at that point. You're a specialist. And I can't remember where I heard this, otherwise I'd, I'd give a hat tip to wherever it's from. This is not my original concept, but the difference between an expert and a specialist is a specialist knows their field, knows what they do, you know, they're very knowledgeable and skillful. But an expert is that plus is able to communicate that stuff even to people who are not in that field, just, you know, just to an intelligent, regular person who's not in that field. That's, that's an expert, okay? And that's what happens when you get just isolated. Um, you know, the reason I, I chose the term intellectual inbreeding is I, I think the analogy holds, right? When you get a population of a species that, say, gets isolated somehow in a, in a remote little island or whatever and suddenly is cut off from the rest of their species, sometimes bad things can happen. And I, and I think that the intellect works in a similar way that you need... Um, you need cross-pollination. You need lots of different inputs. So another problem with becoming intellectually inbred is you have your paradigm protected from having any of its potential weaknesses or holes revealed to you because you're only interacting with, reading, listening to, talking with people that already agree with you 95 plus percent. And so if there are gaps in your beliefs, if there are contradictions, if there are problems, you're much less likely to realize them, right? So they, they end up being, as uh, Donald Rumsfeld once said, unknown unknowns. They're, they're gaps in your knowledge or, or, or holes in your beliefs that you don't even know are there, right? And that's unknown unknowns are more dangerous than known unknowns. That was actually one of the, one of the smartest things I ever heard Donald Rumsfeld say was that whole unknown unknown versus known unknown things. It's, it's one of those things that when you first hear it on TV, he, it sounds like the dumbest thing you've ever heard. You're like, what the hell is he even saying? But then you actually think about it, and you go, oh, yeah, no, that actually, that's one of the smartest things that this guy's ever said. You know, again, a stop clock can be right every now and then. So I'm saying if you only ever read and cite articles and books by other, you know, whatever you consider yourself, libertarian, anarchist, or, or whatever, your, your preferred, you know, voluntarist, whatever it is. If you're only ever reading stuff, listening to stuff, um, citing articles, whatever, from people who are already, like, totally 100% in your tribe, I'm not saying never do that. <laughs> I'm not saying never consume stuff from your tribe. I'd like all of you to listen to my podcast. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm saying, you know, keep it omnivorous. Keep it omnivorous. Never stop... Um, you know, having, having an open mind and, and never stop realizing you could always be wrong about something. So the parts of my background I share with you, I think, explain why, why I'm always very intellectually curious and always want to find, you know, new information and new points of view. And in part, I wanted to share all that with you to make the point that even someone like me, who's by personality and, and kind of education, is geared towards being very, very open-minded and, and kind of 
you know, try to, try to be as, as well-rounded intellectually as I can within reason, even someone like me still has certain tendencies towards things like confirmation bias, which probably a lot of you are familiar with the basic concept of confirmation bias. Um, it was actually part of, I did a series called 21 Key Concepts and Theories, I think a couple years ago, and one of them was confirmation bias. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go in, into huge detail about what it is. You can look it up, uh, you know, you can just Google it up for the basics if you, if you wanna listen to that episode. Um, I wanna say it was like episode 107 or something, but I could be wrong. I don't have all that memorized. I'm, I'm not Scott Horton. If I, was, if I was Scott Horton, I'd be able to tell you like, you know, what I did in 1987 or something. At least, at least if it had to do with war. But confirmation bias is the innate tendency of the human mind to want to reinforce rather than question your existing beliefs. And it doesn't just affect how you engage with ideas, it even affects it at other levels before that. So for example, confirmation bias will affect how you search for information. Confirmation bias will affect what sources you look at and which ones you don't. It will affect how you rate different types of evidence. It will affect even things like how you remember information. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very sort of cunning thing. And social media and search engines do not help this. They make that, that natural tendency worse. They reinforce it because they're gonna to tend to give you stuff that they think is already up your alley, right? We all know this. So this is, this is very, very dangerous. And another, another problem with confirmation bias is that intelligence is no guarantee of being immune from it. In fact, there's been some uh, studies and experiments that show it's possible that often more intelligent people might be more prone to confirmation bias in some circumstances, and it's because their intelligence allows them to rationalize their incorrect beliefs more effectively. <laughs> they, they could do a better job of coming up with bullshit that seems to make internal logical sense to hang on to a belief that like really, you know, seems to be, you know, needs to be thrown out. So this is why plenty of smart people believe things that are not true, and I don't mean things where there's like you know some reasonable disagreement or some gray area, or it or it you know it's a question having to do with like values and that sort of thing. I mean things where it's like it's just clear-cut facts that can easily be confirmed or not, and there are some very smart people that are just not even right on on the basic facts about something they have strong opinions about, and emotion plays a huge part in confirmation bias. In general, people have the strongest tendencies towards confirmation bias in the subject areas where people tend to get the most emotional. Because your emotions then manipulate your reason. And it's no surprise that the two areas, subject areas, where people tend to exhibit the strongest tendencies towards confirmation bias are the two subject areas in which people are generally the most emotional, religion and politics. So there's um, studies that also show that there are these different effects that reinforce your confirmation bias and sometimes cause you to double down on it when confronted with opposing arguments and opposing evidence. For example, um, there's the so-called backfire effect 
that's been observed in a number of different uh, psychological experiments and things where very often people, when they're confronted with like solid evidence that something that they believe is wrong, they will double down. They will become more vehement and extreme in their incorrect belief rather than you know, going, oh, wait a minute, that's information I didn't know. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I have to reevaluate my beliefs about this thing. The natural tendency of most people unless they're you know, really kind of consciously trying to be a, a true critical thinker in the true sense of the word, is to just double down on your existing belief, that sort of thing. So confirmation bias, it can show up in a number of different ways. And I would also argue that much of conventional academia, including the degree process and the peer review process and all that, is actually just a giant exercise in confirmation bias wherein the existing paradigms of a field are simply defended and perpetuated and you know, reified um, for, for many, many generations. Some of you might have read, there's a, there's a famous book by Thomas Kuhn called uh, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And one of, the, one of the many interesting points he makes in that book is he says, you know, what really causes a new scientific paradigm to rise in practice is not the validity of the paradigm I mean, that's part of it, but a big part of it is simply waiting for the older generation of scientists who stick to the old discredited paradigm to literally die off. Because, you know, they, they, get, they get their jobs, they get their careers, and their entire life's work is based on, you know, some, some theory or whatever that the evidence seems to show is, uh, no, is not really valid, but nobody likes to, to look back on multiple decades of a career and go, yeah, those, uh, those theories that I was a proponent of for, for 25 years, they're wrong. Even though that's the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's the intellectually honest thing to do anyway, I should say. Be a better way to put it. So, how to avoid, how to avoid confirmation bias? And then also I'll circle back in a minute to, you know, how do we avoid, um, in general, uh, getting sucked into intellectual inbreeding? Uh, just a few suggestions. One is simply, like, like so many other problems, of, most important thing is to acknowledge that it is a potential problem. Know that it's there. If you are a human, you are prone to it. If you are a smart human, you might be more prone to it. So acknowledge it and then try to be conscious of it when it's happening. Deliberately from time to time consume some content that you know you're not going to agree with, at least not in whole. And always be willing to consider that you may potentially be wrong about something. So part of this comes from our, our tribalism, our, our tribal nature as a species. This is illustrated, for example, by the, the ash conformity study, among others, that uh, Jim mentioned yesterday, where they put the different lines on the board and say, all right, which line is the same length as, as this line over here? And you get a bunch of people who are plants to say the wrong answer, and very often the people who are not plants will go with the wrong answer, even though it's clear to anyone with eyes that work that it's the wrong answer. And the thing is, it's not like all of the people who do that consciously know they're saying the wrong thing. Some of them claim that they did, and they just wanted to go with the flow and go with the group. But some of them, it's such a strong thing that they really, like their reality, their perception of reality, I should say, was that, oh yeah, that was, the right, that was the right answer. 
And they had a hard time accepting that they had given like the totally wrong answer. It wasn't even close to the, to the right size of the line. Anyway, you look, look this up if you're curious and don't know much about it. Uh, it's ASH, A-S-C-H, the ASH Conformity Study. So some people are clearly more prone to tribalism and, and conformity than others, but everyone's prone to it to some degree. Even weirdos and misfits. Even people who come to the uh, weekend of misfit toys that we have going on here we're tribal too. We're just a different tribe. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But that you have to be on the lookout for, for some of the things that can go wrong intellectually with it. So on the one hand, there are people who rebel, but then they immediately join a different tribe and just conform to that. And I always think about in regard to this, if you've ever watched South Park, the goth kids in South Park who are always making fun of all the other students around them. Oh, they're conformists. They're just, you know. And then what do the goth kids do? They all dress the same as each other. They all listen to the same music as each other. They all do the weird, creepy dance the same as each other. And so the question is, are they really being rebellious? Are they really being nonconformist? I mean, on the one hand, yeah, they're going against like the typical mainstream of their classmates, but they're simply just, you know, conforming to another tribe? And, and is that really the same thing as, as truly being free, uh, intellectually speaking? So when tribes are, are geared around beliefs, the confirmation bias will tend to kick into overdrive and become even more powerful than it already is. And of course, as I've mentioned, the things like, uh, things like social media only make this worse as they just give you more of what they, you've indicated that you already agree with. So all of this is a recipe for, for becoming the stereotypical uh, circle jerk, echo chamber type situation. And everybody's prone to it regardless of what ideology their tribe is based around. Now I want to highlight what I see as some of the benefits of very omnivorous and, and, and varied and eclectic reading and listening and watching and however you, you consume uh, intellectual content. Some of the things that, that I've found uh, as benefits from, from being very eclectic in what I consume. So one of them is, I think, regularly engaging with intelligent material from a different point of view than yours tends to make you, because you get kind of used to doing that, as a result, you tend to become calmer and less emotional when confronted with points of view that contradict yours. You don't flip out and immediately start pushing the heretic button. Instead, because you're used to doing this on a regular basis, you go, oh, okay, here's a different point of view. Might, might, they might have some valid points, they might not. Let me figure out what's going on here. And that's, not only is that better for your physical and mental health to be in that mindset more often than in the mindset of, ah, this person's evil. They're saying the wrong things. It's better for your physical and mental health over the long run, I think. And it's also just, in general, you'll, you'll be more effective at communicating. And if you do ultimately decide you think you're right and this person is wrong, you'll be much more effective at potentially persuading them to reevaluate their point of view if you're engaging in that sort of a way, rather than in the you know, name-calling, condemning, heretic uh, uh, cries and all that sort of stuff. It's also, of course, as you might guess, a good exercise in critical thinking to do this on a regular basis, because you don't just go, oh, this person's from a different ideological tribe than me, so they're wrong. You take on their arguments, and you find out if they are wrong, why are they wrong? So it's a, it's a good kind of exercise in just evaluating the strengths and weaknesses of somebody's arguments and point of view. Uh, 
I think you're also less likely to dehumanize people from a different intellectual tribe if you regularly engage intellectual material that you don't totally agree with. And I think that's a good thing as well. And related to that, I think it makes you um, have more capability to be empathetic. Not necessarily sympathetic, but empathetic. To at least be un able to understand where someone's coming from, what they really believe, and perhaps also why. And that's beneficial um, across the board, I think, because even if you ultimately decide that someone of a different ideological tribe from you is your quote-unquote enemy, opponent, whatever you want to call it, you'll actually stand a better chance of dealing with them successfully if you have empathy than if you don't. And don't take my word for it. Take the word of Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu said, if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So I would argue that you're more likely to know your enemy and know yourself if you seriously engage with different points of view on a regular basis. Also, in some cases, you might find out someone's not really your enemy after all, or at least not as much as you thought. And there may be significant common ground you might not have expected. And you do learn useful things. You don't have to accept an ideology as a package deal. You can you know, read up on some belief system or point of view that you don't agree with and say, yeah, pretty much most of that, for these reasons, I, I, don't, I don't buy. But nonetheless, the person made a couple great points about a couple of things that I find useful and illuminating that I can apply to my own thinking. And so you know, just to give you one example from my own experience, Karl Marx, he made some valid points about some things. And I'm willing to acknowledge that. I think he was right about a few things. And that doesn't mean I have to also subscribe to all the rest of his ideology that I think has all sorts of serious problems. But there's nothing wrong with saying, yeah, he was actually made some couple valid points about a couple of interesting things. Other benefits of, of uh, being omnivorous in your content, uh, intellectual content input, you get better at articulating and explaining your own ideas. And of course, there's always the possibility you can be wrong about something. And I sort of agree with, um, I guess it was Socrates as depicted by Plato, that it's better to be corrected than to be correct. In other words, you benefit more in a disagreement. You benefit more by being proven wrong. Because if you get proven wrong, you've learned something. If you prove the other guy wrong, you didn't really benefit, other than you know inflated ego or whatever. But um, the other guy actually benefited because he learned something. Okay, so just a few more um, kind of friendly, uh, helpful tips, suggestions. And again, I'm talking as much to myself as to anybody here. I'm, I'm not trying to like put myself up here as some sort of uh, a guru on any of this. But in, in terms of how how to go about engaging content that you don't agree with 100%, but still trying to get some, some value out of it. One is social media is not the place to engage fruitfully with alternative points of view. It is not. That's not how to do it. For a thousand different reasons, it is the wrong venue for any sort of seriously taking on ideas you disagree with and trying to learn from them one way or another. Next, I would, I would recommend uh, looking into, if you really want to start developing uh, conscious critical thinking, um, I don't have time to get into it here, but look up something called metacognition. 
Okay, the idea of kind of the simplified version, thinking about your thinking while you're thinking. If you can, if you can develop some of those skills, you can spot some of these flaws in your own reasoning and your own beliefs, like in real time as you're thinking about those things. Okay, um, always keep an eye out for confirmation bias, as, as I've already alluded to before. Avoid um, tricking yourself into being an apologist gymnast for whatever your, your ideological tribe is, where you're doing all these crazy, you know, backflips of faulty reason to try to hang on to the conclusion that you started with. You don't want to be that guy, because everybody else who's not um, part of, you know, your, your thinking on that is going to spot it a mile away if they're even halfway smart. When you're engaging with ideas that you don't totally agree with, I, I would urge you to avoid another thing that we get sucked into very often, which is sort of the Manichaean thinking, where you start to see things in terms of, you know, the, the world is, is pure light and pure darkness, and, and there's nothing in the middle. That sort of Sith Lord, George W. Bush kind of, kind of logic, right? Um, you're either with us or the terrorists. Because when you start to see the, the world and the people you're interacting with in those terms, things can go very wrong really quick. You can actually end up seeing as enemies people who aren't really your enemies. And also very potentially problematic, you can start to see people who are not your friends as your friends or who are not your allies, see them as your allies. So we see a lot of this, for example, when um, the world will run out of water soon. We, we see a lot of this, for example, um, like some libertarians who get real, real buddy-buddy with like the crazy alt-right types. And they're led to that by a Manichaean worldview, and it is, I am against the left and the SJWs, therefore anyone else who is against them is my friend and my ally. And like, stop and think, you know, people can be against the same thing for very different reasons. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're on your team in any, any real way. And, you know, the, the old cliche, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that, that's logically fallacious reasoning. The enemy of your enemy might be your friend. Or the enemy of your enemy might be another different enemy. And you can, you know, get yourself into situations you wouldn't want to get into if you mistake someone uh, as, as your friend who really is... You know, and again, using this kind of metaphorically, I'm not saying go out and, and like physically fight people, but your enemy, right? Or someone who, who at least you wouldn't want to ally with in any significant way. You mistake them for, for a potential ally. Um, I'd also suggest, you know, try, and again, I'm speaking as much to myself as, as to any of you, uh, to learn how to be comfortable with uncertainty. Learn how to, be un how to be comfortable, excuse me, with uncertainty. Learn how to be comfortable with not knowing and learn how to be able to say, I don't know, when you don't know. That's something I always, you know, when I don't know something for sure, like even in cases it's something I've researched a ton on and still I can't quite, you know, nail down the answer, I'll admit it. I don't know. I think the evidence kind of suggests this, but I can't say for sure. You actually sound smarter when you admit you don't know something than when you pretend to know something you don't know. Because if anyone who's listening knows a little bit about what you're pretending to know, they'll spot it a mile away. And you'll actually end up looking way dumber than if you say, I don't know. 
You know, it's the classic Socrates thing of he's the wisest man in Athens because he understands the limits of his knowledge. So, you know, he has known unknowns. But the rest of Athens, it's unknown unknowns. They don't even realize how ignorant they are. Now, when, when looking into content that um, you might want to read, listen to, watch, whatever, that's things that's not 100% your, your tribe, I think you have to have standards because all of, our, all of our time is finite and there's always an opportunity cost to everything you do. So certainly, uh, I would say avoid really just kind of low quality and stupid uh, content of a different ideological school than you. Here are some of my standards of what I avoid. Maybe, you know, your mileage would vary on some of this, but I think a lot of it probably is good stuff to think about. Number one, the person cannot be a partisan hack of any sort who's just cheerleading for some particular candidate or party or whatever. Secondly, I want it to be a person who's intellectually honest, who will admit when they are wrong and they've been shown to be wrong. I don't want to listen to content from people who, who never admit when they're wrong about something. It's got to be uh, content from people who are, comf who are not comfortable with really obvious double standards and hypocrisy. Can't be a person who's just like clueless and oblivious and fine to have totally contradictory beliefs that are like not you know subtly contradictory but blatantly contradictory. Um, also, personally, I'm not at all interested in moderates, at least in the American political context, because a moderate usually just means a person who combines the worst shit from the left and the worst shit from the right. And you know, I got so much time in the day, I'm not I'm not you know reading up on that. So you know, figure out kind of what your standards are. I, I, would, I would rather read a really intelligent, sophisticated, thought-out, well-argued book by some socialist than a libertarian book that's written by someone who really doesn't know what they're talking about and doesn't make a lot of sense. I'll actually have more, more respect and get more value out of the intelligent work that I disagree with. So... Um, just in, in kind of circling it all back around, when it comes to your intellectual input, please consider being as omnivorous as time and other resources permit. If you believe exactly the same things about every single major issue at age 50 that you did at age 20, that means you spent 30 years not learning anything about anything important. Now, I'm not saying that you might not still have like some of the same bedrock principles and things like this. But if all your, all your beliefs and opinions on like specific individual questions and issues are the same, it means you haven't learned anything new. And the odds that you got the right answer by dumb luck when you were 20 about lots of important you know, questions are not very good. Not very good. I don't know about you, but when I was 20, I didn't believe all the same stuff. I, I believe some of the same stuff I believe now. Not all of it, for sure. And I'm not even 50 yet. Yeah. Um, if you believe that your beliefs are rationally consistent and correct, you should not be afraid of encountering and seriously engaging with contrary beliefs, and you should not lose your cool when doing so. Don't be like a cult member who avoids all outsiders and all outside thoughts for fear of being contaminated. Don't be the fanatic who responds to anyone who disagrees with them by immediately assuming that the person must be evil, and that's the only reason that they disagree with you. Don't have strong opinions about things that you really don't know much about and into which you haven't done much serious research.
you can still hold to your own principles and values and worldview, and yet at the same time have constructive communications and even collaborations with people who don't share it 100%. And wrapping that all up, closing it all out, I just have one more quote of the day uh, to, to kind of leave it on, and that is uh, from the Chinese Taoist sage Chuangzu, who said, the torch of chaos and doubt that is what the sage steers by. Thank you. So CJ, I know, um, I, I gotta say, I completely agree on the importance of absorbing alternate content and, and really the, the practice of you know, steel manning rather than straw manning. Yes. But, um, also, there's got to be an emphasis on, on first really developing those intellectual defenses. I think we've all seen plenty of friends fall to the dark side just because they, you know, let's say um, they're economically illiterate and somebody put some Marxist arguments in front of them. They're like, oh, sure. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it was, I, I guess, sort of implied, but, but, um, but I, I never explicitly said it that, yeah, um, this is all assuming that you're, you're also serious about developing critical thinking skills, right? And, and real critical thinking is like anything else. It's a skill set and a mindset, and they're both important. You have to have both. And also, like, like any skill, it will atrophy if you don't use it. So, you know, first, first you have to kind of develop more of, of an understanding of critical thinking if you don't already, but it's one of those things that's always a work in process. You're never, you're never done, you know, learning about learning. Um, but I think that if you're, if you're serious about at least the concepts and the mindset of critical thinking, that there's kind of no danger that you'll be seduced by faulty arguments if you've got sound sound skills and the right, the right attitude, I think. So, yeah, you know, how this would affect school children in Honduras is a different question. But I will now model what I was talking about and say, since I have not done any research into that topic, I will refuse to weigh in on it. A any, other any other questions? Earlier you talked about uh, jargon within specific areas yes and i wish i didn't quite connect it in my mind the difference between the area specific jargon and then the jargon that's kind of like the bullshit jargon that's just covering up your i guess i'm assuming your lack of knowledge or your late intellectual laziness could you go back right. over that again okay yeah 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 um what i meant to say um which which you know i, I guess i didn't i didn't do as clearly as i could have there is that in any particular like specialty or discipline or field, whether it's like a career or, or simply just like an intellectual discipline or whatever, or even like an activity that you're into, or, or you know, I don't know if you're a, a fan of a particular sport or whatever, that a certain amount of specialized jargon is inevitable because you need to have ways to communicate about these, the specifics of what it is that you and, and your tribe, whether it's you know you and you and all your your Game of Thrones buddies, or whether it's you and your coworkers in some specialized job, um, you have to have shorthand ways 
to clearly communicate with each other. And of course, it's going to develop in a, in a sort of unique jargon just for people who are into that stuff, whatever it is, right? But when it comes to uh, an area such as conventional academia, in which there's a lot of um, just intellectual conformity and um, intellectual inbreeding, that is the sort of situation in which the jargon, for lack of a better term, just kind of goes wild, I, I think. And I think the reason why it happens is because you're not regularly engaging with people who aren't part of your group. And so it kind of, you just sort of get further and further away from clear communications that potentially an educated outsider could understand. And again, there's always gonna be some amount of jargon, don't get me wrong, there's always, there's always gonna be certain things that astrophysicists say that I'm gonna hear and go, I don't even know if that was English. But you think about it, in particular, in something like the social sciences and humanities, you don't have to go back that far to where you could read peer-reviewed articles in social science and humanities academic journals. And if you were an educated layman, not, not in that field, but you know, you were, you were highly literate and a decent critical thinker, you could understand most of what they were saying and the points they were making. Now, that is not always the case. Now, you know, you pick up a, a, an academic history article, and sometimes it's very good, I'm not saying across the board it's, it's like this, but um, you know, you suddenly pull it up and, and you've gotta have a, a thesaurus handy for all the jargon, and sometimes it's jargon that's not even in a thesaurus. You know, it's so specialized it hasn't even made it into that, you have a hard time even Googling it up. And so, again, this is, this is to me, um, the, the, mark of, the mark of the real expert is the ability to communicate things to intelligent laymen who are not in the field. But yeah, that, that's the distinction I would make between sort of useful, inevitable jargon versus jargon going crazy, yeah. Anyone else? Thanks, CJ. Um, wondering, uh, like, if you could pick a time and place of history uh, to live, you know, and you could bring your family with you and all that, uh, or not, or whatever, <laughs> whatever you want. Um, do you have a time and place of history your favorite? Mm, now, yeah, actually, now, um, and and here I've got to lean on a little bit. Uh, someone with whom I do not agree on everything, but who I found value in his work, Stephen Pinker. Uh, better angels of our nature, that kind of stuff. Um, and you, you look at just how we physically live, right? There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things wrong in this country and around the world right now, a lot of problems, but compared to the grand sweep of history, I'd rather be born in a, in a, in a first world country in this time period than in any, any country like going way back. I like not dying if I get strep throat. I like having air conditioning and iced coffee in Florida because if I didn't have air conditioning and iced coffee, I would have to leave or die. I, I like that, you know, I can have, I like that I can have glasses to fix my, my cruddy eyesight. You know, and, 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 I'm, and I'm glad you asked this question because um, th there is a tendency, and I'm prone to it, like most people, there is a tendency to sometimes sort of idealize certain sections of the past when there was like some neat stuff going on that you like. And I find that I always have to kind of like remind myself that 
you know, wherever the time period is, like if you look back at ancient Athens, you're like, wow, look at all that stuff going on, all the great art, all the, you know, all the philosophy, all, the, all these innovations, look at all that cool stuff, yeah, yeah. And, and it was like, you know, 1% of Athens that was experiencing any of that. And I think, you know, over 50% of Athens were actually literally slaves. And yeah, if you got sick, I don't know, they'd try and like bleed you maybe. I don't know if they were working on that yet or not. They would, you know, do something, you know, have a, have a, some kind of goofy, you know, quack cure. So yeah, I mean, if you, if you put it all together, for all the, all the things wrong and all the horrible stuff and, and, and you know, all the wars and Scott Horton's entire presentation and, um, and, and it's true even domestically too. Like, I'm sure a lot of you know, we have this weird phenomenon where, where hover parenting is getting more and more hovering uh, at a time when kids are way, way safer than even when I was a kid in the 80s. I mean, you're way less likely to get like abducted and sawed in half now than in the, than the 80s. And yet in the 80s, I was riding my bike with no shoes on across two counties and like maybe occasionally coming home to, to get a free meal. And, and then now, like you, you can't even go to the, like you've got to watch your kid go to the mailbox to get the mail for you. Or at least, you know, that's how a lot of people are. So um, I forget the term that Steven Pinker uses, but there's this tendency where our perceptions, and a big part of it's the media, our perceptions get warped, where because, you know, it's sort of like the old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. Um, because the bad stuff of right now gets tons of attention and coverage, we lose sight of the fact that actually so many aspects of our day-to-day -day existence are like the best possible. Now again, you know, if you're, if you're living in, in, in Bangladesh or Zaire or something like it, it might be a different story. But uh, yeah, yeah I've, heard, I've heard things. I've heard things. Um. I don't know if this is true or not, but I've heard recently that there are actually fewer school shootings now than there have been in previous decades. That's interesting. I, I, haven't, I haven't seen the, the data on that, but certainly like the overall homicide rate has been on a long-term decline for multiple decades, all these sorts of things. Um, yeah, we're, we're actually, if you're in a first world country in, in this era, you're actually statistically very safe from those sorts of things. Some of you may have seen the lists of things that are more likely to kill you than a terrorist if you live in America. Now, if you live in Syria, maybe it's a different story, right? But, you know, yeah, 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 slipping and falling in the shower. And, and no, no one's saying like, oh, Big Brother needs to ban showers. Because, and if you don't want to ban showers, you want people to die. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the list of things more likely to kill you than a terrorist is extremely long and includes all kinds of things that no one I've ever heard of is actually afraid of. I mean, maybe like one guy out there who's got like a horrific phobia of the shower, but I've never met him. Ah, see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer to evaluate their content from afar, so I've never noticed. Anybody else? Wait, just a quick follow-up question. Like, sure. Um, uh, do you think there was a, hopefully you'll have the same answer, do you think there was a, a high watermark for like philosophy and rationality in history at some point, in some place? Mm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I would put it in, in terms of high points. There's, there's, definitely, there's definitely sort of isolated, isolated points of light, I would say. Wasn't that, wasn't that George H.W. George Bush? That, that, thousand points of light, yeah, thousand points of light. Um, yeah. <laughs> that... You know, there, there are clearly identifiable times and places where, 
where ideas and philosophy and things are sort of like blooming. I mean, obviously there's, there's classical Athens, um, there's you know, the, the Renaissance city-states of Italy, um, there's sort of like the, the, the kind of medieval Renaissance that um, you know, got overlooked for a long time. Uh, there's, there's the Enlightenment, there's the sort of, you know, scientific revolution era of, right before the Enlightenment. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely individual places where you can see, like, oh, people are suddenly thinking a lot more clearly and are, and are coming up with a lot, new, um, a lot of new ideas and things. But, yeah, it, it seems to me like it's, it's, it's sort of like it comes and goes rather than like a, like a long-term, you know, single peak or something like that, I guess, is, is how I would see it. Uh, this wasn't my question, but do you think people nowadays are smarter than they ever been in some ways in critical thinking in general? I mean, where maybe hundreds yeah. of years ago it was only kings and queens and you know people in business or whatever mm. that kind of had the logical thinking down to some extent. That yeah, that's a that's a very interesting question, and I don't know. I don't know if there is a clear cut or simple answer to that. I think I think it's one of those things where there are so many different types of of smart that I think people of today are definitely on average much more you know better better thinkers but other ways in which they're not so you know relatively relatively few people in a first world country today when they get sick, want the witch doctor. But on the other hand, there are some people who, who will do some version of that still. And there are, you know, people are more rational about certain things, like most people kind of understand when lightning happens that it's not you know, Thor um, getting pissed off, but, it, but on the other hand, they might have crazy beliefs about something else. Thor. It's not Thor? Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually Loki. It's Loki. That's yeah. He 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 stole Thor's hammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So yeah, I think it's I think it's very complicated. I, I think I think we are smarter in some ways, but maybe not in others. And I think we're we're dumber in some ways. And one of the ways where um, and and I'm at the point now where the students coming through my classes are now you know close to 20 years younger than me so there's more, much more of a generational gap between me and them than when I first started teaching. I, one thing I'm noticing in a lot of the students coming through my classes is their, um, their attention spans are terrible on average. Noticeably worse than only 10 years ago. And I'm not saying they were great 10 years ago, but compared to, you know, and again, I'm talking about averages. I, I still have, you know, brilliant students and great students or whatever, but just the sort of average level. Um, and I, I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I think a big part of it is actually just smartphones and, and that yeah. kids have smartphones from the time they're two. And, uh, and, and so that they, they never learn how to focus. In, in other words, people who, shouldn't otherwise have ADD end up having ADD. Um, you know, I think about all the times when I was a kid that I would just like go play some simple thing in nature or just sit and look at the clouds or whatever it was. You know, sit, sit by the side of the lake fishing and it's okay if I don't catch anything all day. And I'm, I'm getting the impression that a lot, of, a lot of the people who are now, you know, reaching college age, they've never had those experiences and so as a result, they've never developed those muscles of 
concentrating on something for a while, even if it's boring, quote unquote. Never no boring time, never downtime nowadays. Yeah. There's always something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's that's a way in which people I mean it's not necessarily the same thing as being dumber, but when you think about it, if you're unable to sit and just focus and think about something intently for a while, the the results of that are gonna be your thinking is not going to be as clear or as rational and all that. If you're unable to actually just like sit down and just read through one chapter of a book at a sitting, and you just can't do that, then again, that's going to put just severe limitations on, it's like putting a, a governor on, on an engine, right? It's just going to limit how, how high it could go when it otherwise could have been, been a lot more you know, high-powered. So that's, that's my thoughts on that. So actually, I came up here to ask you, what do you what's coming up? in the next months ah, for you, okay. from you. Yeah, finishing off Civil War. There's going to be at least two more Civil War episodes, regular episodes. And then also, I'm still going to do at least a few more bonus episodes that are Civil War-related kind of niche topics. Um, one of them that I've started to work on a little bit is covering kind of like the weaponry and tactics a little bit more of the Civil War. And, and I might, you know, get into the stories of like some of the famous Civil War sharpshooters and stuff like that because a lot of people don't know very much about that. Um, I didn't before I started looking into it. Um, so finishing off the Civil War, I might do another Key Concepts miniseries, kind of like the 21 Key Concepts I did uh, a while ago. Some other like little, little theories and concepts and things that I find useful to know about. And uh, another one I've got coming up I say relatively near future, but every, everything always takes way longer than I think it will. That's, that's, I'm starting to finally learn that. Um, every time I'm like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do my episode on such and such by next month, and then no, no, yeah. Because then I find out there's like 29 more important books I haven't looked at yet. Um, it's whole, and the Civil War is the absolute worst when it comes to that. Because the Civil War is the most pop popular history topic in America. So my, uh, the library at the college where I work has an entire Civil War section. It's just like wall to wall of every book about the Civil War ever written. So you can imagine a big, a big thing that slowed me down with the Civil War was just reading, reading too many books about it. But um, one, one that I do want to do in the relatively near future that I'm sure a lot of people will be excited about is Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. A lot, lot of Wilson fans in the, in the crowd. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's what I've got on the, on the relatively near horizon. Anybody else? One of my uh, favorite parts of your series were your uh, DHP heroes. Because um, mm. I just love the way that you analyzed you know, the positive and negative aspects of these people that were generally supposed to either look up to or mm -hmm. you know, bash. Um, I had sent you an email a while back about doing um, one on Gandhi. I was wondering oh. if that's in the works at all. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's on my giant list somewhere because I do have a giant master list of potential future topics. So it's definitely on that. But as far as like, you know, in, in, the, in the next few months horizon or rest of this year horizon, um, probably won't get to it, but it's on the eventually list. One, one who's maybe a little bit, a little bit closer on, on the list for me to cover that I would probably put in the DHP heroes category is actually Edward Abbey, who, you know, a lot of people don't know. I don't think he gets enough, enough respect as, as kind of a cantankerous individualist anarchist. And, you know, not, not all of his, his thoughts and beliefs, I, I think, are, are consistent or whatever, but at the same time, like, he wrote some pretty cool books. So, 
Uh, and he, he's got some great little quotes and sayings and stuff. So he's a lot of fun. Would you put Gandhi in a hero's category, or would you say <sighs> that maybe yeah. there are better ways to do the things he was well, trying to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's it's, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. I mean, he, yeah. I mean, I mean. It, yeah, no. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot to like about about a lot of what Gandhi said and did. So it's it's not it's not simple at all, you know. It's, and and I I would probably just you know do the same disclaimer that I always do on a DHP Heroes episode of like, look, I call this DHP Heroes just to have a neat little name for it. I'm not telling you this is a person I, I worship. I'm not telling you this is a person that I even agree with 100% or you know that they didn't do some, some dumb stuff and whatever. Um, but just like, hey, this is someone who's you know, pretty good, right? Like, you know, Smedley Butler. You know? I don't agree with everything he believed. I don't you know, think everything he did in his life was great. He was a supporter of Prohibition when Prohibition was around. You know? On the other hand, particularly after he retired, he did a lot of good just in terms of you know, a guy of that stature in the military spilling all those beans about the reality of things. So, you know, that, that kind of thing. I would, I would just have to give the usual sort of disclaimer. But yeah, don't, uh, don't have heroes in the sense of what most people mean when they say it. When you were doing the villains, what was your favorite villain? That I've done so far? Or maybe that you haven't done. Well, I mean, Woodrow Wilson is, is one of the ones that I love to hate the most. I'm one of those ones, you know, one of the thing, one of the, the questions that often gets raised in, in these sorts of uh, circles is, who's the worst president, you know? Um, and, and I actually, I'm a Woodrow Wilson man when it comes to answering that question. I think when you, when you put it all together, when you put it all together, because he didn't just uh, permanently put this, this country on a number of paths that like, made a lot of things worse in terms of state power than before. But you know, when you combine that with how he got Team America into World War, II, or World War I, and even the things he was doing before he got Team America in, you know, um, make, basically facilitating uh, American banks to lend money to the British and French and all these sorts of things, and then getting America into the war, and then how he fumbled the end of the war, how he um, allowed the Treaty of Versailles to end up being so lopsided that if you were deliberately trying to rig things up to create World War II, you couldn't have done a whole lot better than, than what the Treaty of Versailles did. And, you know, he doesn't deserve all the blame. The other Allied leaders deserve a lot of the blame for how that worked out as well. But, you know, he could have yanked the leash on some of those excesses against Germany and had a fairer peace at the end of World War I. And then, you know, I'm one of those people who believes that if World War I had ended on more fair terms, the likelihood of World War II goes way down, at least World War II in Europe. There might have still been an Asian war for their own reasons. But uh, on, on the topic of Woodrow Wilson, the, the whole quote that he was remorseful of, the make, of signing the, you know, the Federal Reserve Act into law, um, there's been... From my perspective, there's been controversy of whether or not it was real. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll probably, I'm still pretty early into like my serious in-depth Wilson research for the, it'll probably be a, a mini-series, um, not, not just one episode. So, but my understanding of that famous quote, I, I know the one you're talking about, I am a most unhappy man, a nation is controlled by its credit, or whatever, that's how it starts off. Um, 
my understanding is that that is a, a mishmash of two separate statements he, he said in different contexts. It wasn't like one thing he said one time. It was, he said one thing over here and like, you know, another time about another topic, he said the other part of that. And that someone, either by being sloppy or deliberately, you know, misleading, mushed those two quotes together in such a way that it makes it sound like he regretted creating the Federal Reserve. Far as I know, he never regretted creating the Federal Reserve. So, yeah, I think that that quote, um, again, its origin is probably either incompetence or deliberate, you know, misleading. And then the fact that that quote still circulates so widely is a result of kind of exactly what I was talking about in my talk of people who go, oh, look, some person on social media that I like is sending out this Woodrow Wilson quote. And it makes Wilson sound like he's bashing the Federal Reserve. And I don't like the Federal Reserve. Therefore, this must be true. Therefore, I'm going to share it. And so this is how a lot of these things like get a life of their own where they never go away. Another one that I'm sure probably a lot of you have heard of is the old one about John F. Kennedy got killed because he wanted to put America back on the silver standard. And that it's a complete either misunderstanding or, or deliberate, you know, misleading of, of all that surrounds that as far as what was going on with the silver certificates at the time and what it really meant. So yeah, if, if you think that John F. Kennedy got killed because of his stance in regard to the Federal Reserve, you need, to, you need to do more research, you know. Um, I think there's a, lot more, there's a lot more behind the idea that it had more to do with things like the military-industrial complex. I think there's a lot more likelihood that if it wasn't a lone nut, that that's more what's behind it than the Federal Reserve. Because Kennedy, as far as I know, didn't really have a problem with the Federal Reserve. I thought you were going to go to the blade of grass quote. Blade of grass quote? Yeah, there's a gun behind every blade. Oh, oh yeah, the, the, the admiral. <laughs> from uh, a movie. Yeah, yeah, that's the, the, the Japanese admiral, supposedly, in World War II. Yeah, there'd be a gun behind every blade of grass. And if you think about it, if that was the case, it would, you would really want it to, to be the noisy cricket from Men in Black. Because any other gun that can fit behind a blade of grass is not going to be a very effective gun. So, hey, anybody got anything else? So we're all in agreement? I'm right. All right. Thank you, CJ. Man, it's great to have you back. Um, yeah, I think... Um, Pigeon entrails don't lie. Was, I heard someone say that in the front row. It's a great episode title. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. 
One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so, and you'll find them at profcj.org donate. And one of the best most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.